Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercy and your grace. And uh, Lord, uh, our eyes uh, cannot see you as you are. And so, Lord, that you would reveal yourself to us, uh, even in ways that we would least expect it. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. So I didn't even get halfway through Acts 17, and uh, I hope that I offended all of your sensibilities last week when uh, I basically uh, criticized our architecture and uh, and various and sundry traditions that we have in the church. Uh, But we didn't even get to the controversial part, which uh, I've decided not to dodge the bullet uh, because uh, this is one of my last Sundays before I go to Germany and then on sabbatical. Uh, So I'm going to let you be mad at me if if you want and come back at me a little bit. Uh, So we're in Acts 17. And uh, Paul is preaching the sermon at the Areopagus. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown. This I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it being Everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with him. The word of the Lord. Okay, so I kind of skirted around the issue last week, uh, but uh, hopefully if you remember last week, I I don't remember what happened on Friday, but if you remember what happened on last Sunday, uh, this will make a little bit more sense. And that is that one of the things that Paul is getting to and using illustrations around him in Athens is uh, the hiddenness of God. And this uh, was a great truth that was rediscovered at the Reformation. And this actually was the hardest thing for people to accept when it came to Luther's teaching. uh, And it was from passages like that. And in fact, this is what Luther said, and this is what Paul has said this morning in the narrative of the Bible says, is that God actually hides himself. He hides from us. Now... When I first heard that, I thought, that's the worst thing I've ever heard in my life. What do you mean God hides himself? So we're going to need to unpack that a little bit as Paul has tried to unpack it uh, today. Let's start by looking at Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, the fall of Adam and Eve. I always think it's so funny that no one ever picks this passage for a wedding uh, service, Uh, but uh, it's, it's a good one. Uh, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to woman, 
Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and the wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Well, uh, this is a bad story uh, and I don't need to elaborate on that. Uh, but a couple things. Uh, what does it mean that God is, is hidden? Because here, obviously, who is hiding themselves? Adam and Eve are hiding themselves. But Eve, her great sin, and this is the great sin of the world, is that she didn't trust in God's Word. Uh, she believed that God was actually withholding something from Himself that he hadn't given her the full story. And rather than believing uh, in God's word to her, which was don't eat of this tree, whose word did she believe? The serpents, right. She, she listened to the serpents. Uh, not only that, but it's very interesting to me that when uh, uh, the serpent questions her, uh, you will not surely die. Uh, before that, she says, God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Well, God actually didn't say that to her. God said it to who? Adam. And not only did he say it to Adam, that's actually not what he said to Adam. The propensity of human beings is to take God's law and to either ratchet it up, or to, and, but in ratcheting it up, they actually make it more accomplishable in their own eyes. So what God told Adam is what? Don't eat it. Right? He didn't say anything about touching it. Don't eat it. And so, but this woman, in the midst of being tempted, uh, says, well, you know, he says not to eat it nor touch it, uh, lest uh, you die. Uh, and in the ratcheting up of the law, uh, you know, Jesus was confronted with this time and time again. Uh, where he would be in, you know, with the Pharisees and he would uh, talk about uh, what uh, the law meant and, and what was at its core. People criticized Jesus for not following the laws of the day, whether that, those were his disciples plucking grains of wheat uh, from uh, the fields uh, or whether or not his disciples were eating with defiled hands or even Jesus' de declaration that the dietary laws no longer applied. Uh, these things uh, were anathema. Uh, to the, his Jewish listeners of the day. But I think it's really interesting that even today, uh, that problem still exists in the midst of Israel. I've told you before uh, about that there's actually a committee uh, that gets together and decides how the law is applied in the life of a Jewish individual. So, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. What does that mean? Right? And some of us would really like a little bit of guidance, right? Let's actually 
nail it down to what it means to keep the Sabbath day holy. Playing baseball, would, would that be a violation uh, of the Sabbath? Well, what about Sunday dinner, which I'm cooking, would that be a, a violation of the Sabbath? Well, actually, there's this committee in Israel that decides that, and they have decided, and I think the best one is, uh, is it a violation of the Sabbath to ride in an elevator on, the, on, on a Saturday? They've decided no, but it is a violation to touch the buttons and choose a floor. And so if you're in Israel and you go to a hotel on a Saturday, make sure you don't get into the Sabbath elevator because it stops at every single floor. Right? Uh, even some of you out there today, because I've heard some of you tell stories, uh, growing up in parts of Birmingham where there was a large Jewish population, uh, would actually be paid uh, by Jewish families to come in and do things like turn on the oven uh, because that would be a violation of the Sabbath. Uh, but putting the food in the oven, uh, I guess, is, is not. Now, we might roll our eyes at that sort of stuff, but we do it all the time. Uh, we do it all the time. Uh, just as Eve has done it and, and just as Adam would do it, uh, we often try to take God's law and make it something uh, achievable uh, but in the process realizing uh, that it's just something that we cannot, we cannot keep. And we've actually taken God's law and we've reduced it. So when Jesus came, Jesus didn't take and ratchet up the law, but he tried to turn everyone's orientation and say, no, 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 no. Uh, in an effort to keep the law, you've actually undermined what the law is all about. And so here, uh, rather than taking God at his word, in hearing what God has to say to Adam and Eve and trusting in God, uh, they thought God is hiding something from us. And so if we eat, we will be just like God. And so they eat. And immediately they know that they're naked. Uh, one of my, uh, if you've ever been a senior warden uh, or a warden at all at the Advent, be warned, uh, you are part of my Christmas Eve traditions. Uh, it's always fun because normally every other year we have a warden that gets up and reads this passage from Genesis and uh, for lessons and carols normally, because uh, it's not Christmas, lessons and carols, and, uh, and they will, uh, every once in a while you'll, you'll hear, and they hid themselves because they were naked. And um, that's always a, a, a highlight for me. Uh, the kids seem to enjoy it. Uh, so uh, now everybody's going to be self-conscious uh, if, if you ever have to read this passage publicly. Uh, but they realized that they were naked, so they went into hiding. Uh, and God actually is totally out in, in the open, fully revealed. Uh, God uh, has gone out of His way to make Himself known uh, to Adam and Eve, that they have fellowship there in the garden, and there's no impediment. Now all of a sudden there's an impediment, and they're afraid, and they hide. Now, when they're sent out, the sin of Adam and Eve of not trusting uh, in God's Word uh, continues down through uh, the generations. And that, again, is the real problem that we have in our world. Uh, not that we're necessarily looking for love in all the wrong places, which we are, uh, but that we simply don't take God at His Word. So Paul uses a very interesting phrase here when he says what? He commands that all should repent. Right? It's not an option. He tells you God is commanding you to repent. But what do we do? We always look for other options. Right? We either, well, you know, maybe, maybe we'll take option A or, or option B. And even when God reveals Himself, people don't want to see it. 
uh, because they want God to reveal himself in certain ways. So amongst the Athenians, the way that they thought God ought to reveal himself or themselves uh, was through climbing a spiritual ladder. Right? If you wanted to encounter the divine, you went to a temple. Why? Because logically, that's just where the divine lives. That's where they or he dwell, uh, depending on whether you're, you're Greek or you're a believer. And so going uh, to those places, or it might be through living uh, a righteous and holy uh, and devout life, uh, that the holier you are, uh, the closer to God you will be. And don't we think that way? Uh, we think in terms of people being closer to God than we are. And why do we think that? If we're honest, it's probably because they're better people than we are. And if that's the case, y'all are all closer to God than I am, right? And y'all should be up here and, and not me. But the fact of the matter is because of Jesus Christ, you're as close to God as you are ever going to be until you see him face to face. Closer, you're not farther away than Mother Teresa. Uh, you're not closer uh, than the Christian who struggles and is just hanging on uh, by the skin of their teeth to God's grace and mercy. Uh, we are all in the same boat, and God shows no partiality in how he loves his people. Right? He doesn't love us uh, by degrees. You know, I, I, that's uh, something having multiple children causes you to think about. <laughs> it's not that you love any of them more than anybody else, but yeah, you, you do love them uh, in different ways. And so it's perfectly logical for us to think, well, then that's, that's how God must love us. But actually, uh, God's love being pure and unadulterated uh, loves us as we are, uh, in our nakedness. Uh, we also think that if God is to be found in our own Christian walks with the Lord Jesus, uh, then He's to be found in pursuing super spiritual things. So I use the example, uh, or in what we would consider really good things. Uh, I used the example last week of uh, Frank Limehouse uh, being in a hospital room as a seminarian with the rector of the congregation he was serving. And uh, a boy had died tragically, a teenage boy, and the parents were distraught. And so Frank just stuck up against the side of the wall, wondering how this clergyman was going to deal with this tragic and awful situation. And uh, Frank just prayed, and uh, the clergyman uh, knelt down uh, next to the mother who was inconsolable. And he said, I just want you to know that God had nothing to do with this. And she stopped crying and looked up at him and she said, please don't take away the only hope I have right now. She understood the hiddenness of God because what the world does is the world says that God is wholly absent from suffering, from grief, from pain. And we become basically Manichaeans where we believe that uh, the, there's a God of the Old Testament who's bad and mean and he's wrathful, but now we've got this God of the New Testament who's really nice and really good. Uh, we have a hard time seeing that they are in fact the same God who could reveal himself in love and mercy, especially in the person of Jesus Christ, uh, but also uh, the same God who could say, you need to wipe these people out. That's really hard for the world to get. It's even hard for us as Christians uh, to understand how God could possibly uh, be in that. Now, I would say this about Jesus. Uh, Ed Salmon, uh, who died uh, a week and a half ago, uh, we were telling stories about him, and somebody said that 
he joined the staff of a church as the rector, and the, it was pretty dysfunctional. The staff members were triangulating. They were talking about one another and not talking to one another. And so Bishop Salmon said, well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to get us all around the table, and we're going to have it out. We're all going to say to one another exactly how we feel. And after about 10 minutes of this, one of the staff members said, gosh, this is not very nice. And, uh, and Bishop Salmon, in his little voice, said, well, may I suggest to you that Jesus was not always very nice? And he was right. Jesus was not always very nice. And there are parts of the Bible, especially even in Jesus' ministry, that we'd rather he'd not said. So a, a good example of this would be Thomas Jefferson, who I love, Mr. Jefferson. I went to his university, and uh, I toast him on his birthday, and uh, a great man uh, and patriot and founder of our country. Uh, but one of the things that he did was he took the Bible and he cut out everything that was supernatural, all of Jesus' miracles, some of his teachings, and he kept only Jesus as moral example. Why? Because Jefferson thought, well, this is obviously how God manifests himself, uh, but this is, and God couldn't possibly manifest himself in these hard words or in these miracles. So the world, like the Athenians, is constantly looking for God where he actually is not to be found. And even, uh, read the book of Job. It's a really hard book, and I'm glad that in most seminaries they require you to read it. Mark Genelet's here. He can talk to you a lot about it. But even from faithful people, remember, uh, why does Job get stricken? Because he was bad? Because he was good. Because he was good. I mean, the man lost uh, pretty much everything. And uh, he's sitting there uh, scraping his wounds with, with uh, pot shards. And uh, he's got friends telling him, whatever you did, it must have been real bad. Uh, and then family members saying things like, you know, just curse God and die. Right, just curse God and die. Uh, end it. And Job even crying out, Lord... Uh, I'm not going to curse you, but I want to know what in the world is going on. And so you know what God does? He gives Job an audience. And he begins by saying, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? And then God just goes on. And Job's question never really gets answered. Why? Uh, why he did it? Except what Luther would say is that wherever you are in life, and even in the hiddenness, uh, thing, that if God is hiding himself, that... The answer is always to repent and believe the gospel. And we have to do that because if there is, the world looks at something and says, God is clearly not in that. But in fact, that's exactly where God might be. So there are times when people will come into my office and say, I'm under spiritual attack. The devil is coming after me. And after talking with them and praying with them, it's actually pretty clear that the Lord is working on them. Uh, and sometimes it's actually hard to tell, is this a spiritual attack from Satan or is this actually God doing some kind of work on me? I mean, the, the clear example of, of this is the cross. Right? Who looked up at the cross and said, this is a good Friday? Nobody. Everybody had left the Lord Jesus except for John and the women. And there they're looking up at Jesus dead on the cross, his body hanging limp. And what were their thoughts? This is the worst possible thing that could happen. God is as far away from the world as he's possibly been. But it turns out, we have the resurrection to see the cross in light of, 
But it turns out that God was actually loving the world and reconciling the world and drawing the world closer than he's ever done in the history of the world. And that's a remarkable thing, isn't it? Try, now I've got you all in despair thinking now, ah, uh, but, and so in those moments, and I, you know, I was going through a rough patch in my life, and Paul Walker, who many of you know, uh, is normally not a very great encouragement to me, uh, but he was in this instance, and Paul uh, emailed me and said, you know, what's, what's going on? And, and I wrote back and I said, Paul, uh, I'm just going to tell you, things suck, uh, so God must be working. Uh, and, uh, and he said, uh, it, it's too late now, but I want you to know that I quoted you in, ser- in the sermon that Sunday. I'm like, I hope you didn't use exactly what I said, because that would be inappropriate. Uh, the first part, the second part is fine. Well, that comes uh, through trusting in, in God's word. Even Isaiah cried out, surely this is a God who hides himself, because God had used Cyrus, the Gentile ruler, uh, to accomplish uh, God's will. We see that uh, in uh, the story of the Israelites there in Egypt, where God hardens Pharaoh's heart. We see it with... Uh, 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 with Esau being robbed of his birthright uh, by his brother. Uh, it, Jacob have I loved, and, and Esau have I hated. Uh, these are really hard words, and trying to sit back uh, and make sense of things uh, is a difficult, difficult spiritual exercise. I think sometimes Christians try to explain away too much. Uh, there are times uh, in the midst of tragedy and pain and suffering where... You don't need to see, say anything. You just, you just don't. I mean, I, I, I've mentioned before, and I'll mention it now because uh, he's been very public about it, but when uh, Cam Cole died, Cameron and, and Lauren Cole's uh, little boy, three years old, two years old, uh, died, uh, Frank called me and said, we've got to go over to the hospital. And uh, uh, Frank being Frank, uh, the one moment of comic relief, he said, but I don't know where to park, so can you pick me up? Uh, and I thought, that's very funny. So I picked him up, and we walked in, and I'm thinking, what am I going to say? And uh, I just wept. There, there was nothing, uh, nothing to say except to hang on to Jesus and to trust that he was going to work this out. Now, nobody sat there and said that, uh, that God um, had uh, done something terrible in, in taking the life uh, of this child, even though our hearts are wondering, uh, where is God uh, in the midst uh, of all of this? Uh, but uh, even in the midst uh, of uh, the grave, uh, our song is Alleluia, and blessed be the name uh, of the Lord. But even here, when Paul is moving through his sermon and trying to set the Athenians up, uh, it begins to show how God actually does uh, reveal himself They can't see him. God has hid him from the Athenians because he says, I've lost my page. Uh, He starts talking about they're kind of trekking along. You know, okay, you're offending our whole religious structure and system because you're telling us that our temple worship uh, is for the birds. Uh, But then uh, he starts saying, you know, you think that God is far off, but he's not far off at all. He's not far off. Uh, the times of ignorance God has overlooked. He commands all people everywhere to repent uh, because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. And then what happens? 
they don't want to hear anything else. Why? Because now Paul has actually said, God doesn't reveal himself in this way, but God makes himself plain in what? In the very word of God, Jesus Christ, the word made flesh, that God actually is no, not hidden but comes into the world uh, as a little tiny baby. But the world doesn't even want to hear that because logically, if God were to come into the world, how would he come? If you were God, how would you come? I'd come like he's coming the next time. Yeah, absolutely. I'd be bringing the heat, right? Uh, bringing the can, opening it up, and coming in. Crown, swords, dazzling white. Uh, you know, probably some gold rims, something like that. Um, but how does he come into the world? As a baby. And not just a baby, but a baby born uh, in a nowhere town that would grow up as the son of a manual laborer, uh, and he's born in a feeding trough. That's crazy. God doesn't do that. Now, I often would think uh, at one point in my faith, why didn't God just sort of show up at 30 years old? Here I am, right? And, and now listen, listen to me. Well, God doesn't come in strength. He doesn't come in power. He doesn't come in might. Uh, he comes as a baby, knowable. I mean, how many of us are intimidated by babies? Now, I mean, we are to some extent, but let's talk about babies that you don't have to take care of. Right? They're the best kind. Like, I think that's the biggest perk to being a grandparent. Can't wait. But uh, you've got this baby. Uh, how many of y'all have ever been intimidated by a baby? I mean, you can be because the overwhelming responsibility, but sort of the thing about, I mean, you couldn't have, you're, you're not, you're no more knowable than you are at that moment in your human existence. Right? You're just, there, there you are. So he, he comes as, as knowable. He, he comes as, as vulnerable. He cries out from the manger uh, for food from his mother. Uh, but it also means that he comes as someone who's killable, someone who can die. Uh, and it was by a, a, a work of God that, the Lord spoke to Joseph and said, take your family to Egypt uh, as Herod uh, slaughtered thousands of innocent children. Uh, but the Lord preserved the life uh, of his own uh, son. That is God's alien work. And even though Paul is laying out to the Athenians, but you see, God has come to you. You don't go to God. God comes to you. That's what makes Christianity so different. And yet the Athenians, they think that this is preposterous. That even when God is obvious to those whom he's opened the eyes of the believers, like, well, that's, that's God right there. He's now knowable. He's tangible. He's holdable. They can't see him. They can't see him and they think that this is, this is ridiculous and this notion of, of someone dying for you and, and being raised from the dead for you uh, and even judging for you. I mean, when you hear the word judgment, I, I know I, I kind of sweat a little bit. Right? I don't, I don't, you know, no one likes to be judged. That's why anytime someone says, I'd like to give you some constructive criticism, I'm like, I'm sure it'll be very constructive, as in deconstructive, right? It, you know, or if you've ever had an annual review and the person uh, reviewing you says, you've excelled in these 10 areas better than any employee in our company. 
but there's this one little area that you really need to work on. You're going to leave that meeting remembering what? Not the ten things, but the one thing, right? So I think of, uh, that's what I think of as, as judgment. Uh, but for those of us who are believers, uh, who have seen God uh, as He is in the person of Jesus Christ and simply trusted His Word, believing He is who He says He is and has done what He says He's done on our behalf uh, for us, uh, that's not a day that we should be afraid of, uh, but a day in which we should rejoice because all the wrongs of the world have been righted. And I'm thinking about what's happened recently in our country in the past couple weeks uh, and the tragedies. One is I've been overwhelmed simply by the images um, that we now live in a world where everything is videoed. Everything is videoed. And so to see plastered, I was waiting in an airport and seeing all the scenes uh, of the woman who had showed uh, the police officer shooting the man in the front seat with a four-year-old little girl in the back seat. Uh, that was just really hard for me, even at the air. I had to look away. Uh, I couldn't even uh, see it. And in the midst of all of this going on, I've been thinking about the day of judgment. Uh, my grandfather would say at the end, when I would get wound up because I thought that something was unfair, whether my brothers got something that I didn't or something wasn't going my way, I was complaining about something, uh, he would say to me, Andrew, on the final day of judgment, nobody's getting away with anything. <laughs> now, at the time, I didn't, re I didn't really like that answer. Uh, because, because why? We want it now. Right? We want justice to be vengeful and we want it to be swift. Uh, and it's hard for us because why? We think that that's what God ought, God ought to be smiting people right now. Uh, but instead, uh, God in His mercy allows the world to turn and He continues to reveal Himself uh, through uh, His Word. And unless we trust Him, apart, if we try to trust Him apart from anything else, uh, we're going to be looking for God in all the wrong places. And when He actually does show up and manifest Himself to us, we're going to miss Him because He will be hidden from our eyes. Same with the Athenians. They, they just had the hardest time. And I'm sure that you've, uh, you've had personal encounters with people where uh, you uh, have, it's very obvious that God is working and they just can't see it. Or you've laid out the gospel plainly to them and it's not just an issue, well, they can't see it, but they just refuse to believe it. They refuse to believe that Jesus is who he said he was. And so if uh, God is hidden to you in that way. Uh, it's no wonder that, that when you start talking to people in the world about who God is, who does He look like? Like them. Uh, he looks a whole lot like them. Uh, one of the neighbors said, in the beginning God created man in His own image, and since then we've been trying to return the favor. And that's true. Uh, that's absolutely true. And that's why I really appreciate people like Tom Wright, uh, a bishop in the Church of England and an academic, where students would come into his office and say, you know, Professor, I just can't believe in a God who? And Tom Wright looks at him and says, well, I don't believe in that God either. Where'd you get that from? Well, they didn't get it from, from God's Word. They got it from their experiences uh, and their feelings. Now, this is the last thing I'll say about that. Uh, in our passage in Acts 17, um, Mark, you might be able to help on this. I was looking at the Greek and trying to pound it out. We can talk about that later, Mark Gentilette. But uh, 
he says, starting uh, in verse 26, determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet He is actually not far off from each other, from each one of us. That they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward Him uh, and find Him. Uh, well, you can't feel your way to God uh, unless God is actually drawing your heart toward Him. Right? You, you just can't do that. It takes the intervention of the Holy Spirit to open your eyes to be able to see God uh, as He is. And yet most people in the world are trying to feel God out. They're trying to feel where He is, uh, who He is. And, uh, and the thing about it is, is that if that's the case, uh, we are in really big trouble. Let me give you an example. Lauren, when we, this is actually strikingly similar to a story that Frank and Jane Limehouse have. But when we were first married, Lauren would always ask me, do you love me? Why do you love me? And after a while, I just said, I don't know. I, just, you know, I don't know why I love you, but I do. Uh, and, uh, and she would be really, really upset by this. And fast forward about five years, she was on the telephone talking to a friend in the kitchen who was newly married, and this subject came up. And I heard her say while I'm in the living room watching TV that when Andrew would say that to me, it would really bother me. So at this point, I'm turning down the television and leaning in because she said, but now it was actually the best thing he could have ever said to me. And I thought, how did I land on my feet with this one? <laughs> and she said, you know, what if Andrew had said, I love you because of your thick blonde hair. I love you because of your beautiful blue eyes. I love you for your winning personality. Uh, I love you for the way uh, that, that you look. Uh, I love you uh, for the things that you're able to do uh, for me, the way you cook, the way you clean, whatever they might have been. Uh, but what happens if her hair falls out? What happens if her eyes aren't as brilliant as they used to be? Uh, what if she doesn't do for me what she once uh, did? Uh, you see, love doesn't have anything to hang its hat on. Right? You just are loved, and you have to trust that and believe it, because the moment you, you know, uh, uh, people, uh, one of the most crazy things that's ever happened to Lauren and I happened while we were in New York with the choir. Not because of the choir, but because we were in New York, and we were at this great restaurant, and across the dining room, I mean, it was about 20 feet, there was this very animated conversation happening with a parent, to a mom, a dad, and, and this young woman who was in her 20s, uh, who was obviously their daughter. And she, mom and she were really engaging in conversation, and dad was just there to, to pay for dinner. He was very quiet. And, um, but we could hear what they were talking about. And basically, this young woman used the opportunity to dress her parents down and let them know how terrible a job they did in raising her up. And, I mean, before the end of it, I, I wanted to be like that woman, that great John movie, The Quiet Man, uh, where he grabs Maureen O'Hara and taking her back to the cottage, and the old woman runs up and says, and here's a good stick to beat her with. I mean, I was ready to go over to give this guy a switch uh, to paddle his 20-something-year-old child there in the middle. But what was really striking about it is that the mother was pouring her heart out and crying and saying, no, but, but we love you so much. And then the, the, the daughter would come back and tell her parents why uh, 
that wasn't actually uh, how she wanted or needed to be loved. But what she kept saying over and over again, this was her mantra, mantra when you say that, and she would shut her eyes and raise her head, when you say that, I want you to know that the feeling that it gives me uh, is so overwhelming and it strikes me to my core. And what was obvious even to me, who had no idea who these people were, is that what she was feeling is not at all what her parents were saying. She actually could not hear what her parents were saying. Uh, it is really hard to change somebody who believes in a lie. It is really, it's impossible apart from the Holy Spirit of God. And I just thought, how many people in the world uh, look at God and say, God, when you say or you do this, it shakes me to my very core, and I could not possibly ever feel like I could be your child. And yet, what is God saying? I love you. I've given my life for you. I've come and I've dwelt amongst you. I've, I've rescued you. But when you say that, I don't feel that way. We've all been there, but the answer is clear, and what, what Paul is, is appealing to is, is to put your trust in the Word, put your trust in Him, to preach to yourself. Jesus said it in our gospel passage this morning, uh, after the disciples had come back after seeing all kinds of amazing things, what did Jesus say? Thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to who? Little children. What else did Jesus say? If you're going to enter the kingdom of God, you have to be like a little child who's trusting, uh, who's loving. You know, when I, when I first read that, uh, I, I thought that Jesus meant that we had to be sweet and innocent and loving, and then I had kids and, uh, and realized, surely that's not what the Lord Jesus meant. And that's not what he meant. But there are some things about children uh, that we ought to take note of. Uh, one of those things is that, uh, and this is right out of uh, Jesus' uh, mouth, is that uh, they actually expect you to give good things. They expect their parents to provide for them. So if you come home from a trip, what's the first thing the kid says to you? What did you bring me? Which we think is, well, that's awful selfish, but it's actually not. Why? Because they know, your they know what you're like. They expect you to actually give them good things. Uh, the other thing is that children are able to actually receive a gift without any sense of reciprocation. When's the last time you took a child out to dinner and as you pull back from the table and you've paid the bill, they say, Mom, Dad, I'll get the next one. <laughs> Never in a million years have those words fallen from a child's lips. Why? They're actually able to receive that which the parent has given them. And yet we grow up and Worst nightmare on the, in the face of the earth is that you, uh, you, someone gives you a Christmas gift and you don't have something to give in return. Isn't that a terrible feeling? Uh, and you normally will lie. You'll even lie. You'll say things like, oh, I forgot yours, or oh, I got caught up in the mail. And then you'll go home and you'll hastily rewrap something that someone gave you that you really didn't want in the first place. And you'll say, here's your gift. Right? Or when you're putting together a dinner party list, you start walking through your mind and wondering... Well, they invited us to this, and you know, we kind of need to invite them to that, or they didn't invite us, so we really don't need to invite them. That's crazy, right? That's, that's, that's crazy talk, and that's being led uh, by your feelings rather than the reality of the situation. And so uh, this morning, uh, yes, uh, God hides himself. 
uh, but in Jesus Christ uh, and in his word, he's made himself known. Uh, and he, in fact, hides himself uh, not so that he can be found where people seek him, but he reveals himself uh, where he's not sought out. Uh, and that's exactly where the Lord Jesus meets us. Okay, you've got, I don't have to go to 11 o'clock, so you can ask me anything you want. Where's Mark? Sissy. Really? Gosh, I said some things that, and even last week, all right, coffee. I'm not Mark. Are we hidden from God? No. And do, does God hide from us? Yes. Are we, the, are we the ones that are hiding and in our hiddenness saying that God has abandoned me? Yes. Yeah. Okay. God, uh, we, we hide from God. Uh, and God hides himself, uh, but it's, in, it's through our sin that God hides himself. So, for instance, you know, most people in our world think if things are going really well, we are blessed, and it must be God. That's actually a Muslim idea. It's not a Christian idea, because the corollary of that is, well, things are going bad. It's Job. What have you done that was so uh, bad? You must have done something that caused God uh, to cast you off. Uh, but in fact, it's the thing that we probably want to avoid the most where God reveals himself to us that God may actually be in the midst of that. As trite as it is, you know, if you had a grandmother in the South, she had that poem, Footprints, up normally in the kitchen. I don't know why it was there, but the, there it was. Uh, and, uh, and I would read it as a kid, and I would think, this is so stupid. Uh, and it's this poem where uh, a man is given a view of his life on, on the beach, and, uh, and uh, most of his life, there are two sets of footprints where the Lord was walking with him. Uh, but he begins to notice that in the hardest times of his life, there was only one set of footprints. And he turns to the Lord and says, Ah, see, I knew that it was in those times that you abandoned me. And Jesus responds, No, my child, it was in those times I carried you. Which is true, right? It's, it's, it's not, it's not saccharine. It's actually, that's the truth of the matter is that in fact, when it seems like God may be the farthest off he's ever been, he may in fact be closer than he's ever been. And so before we start jumping, to, when we start saying, God has abandoned me, the first thing that I, is that actually God may be closer and more intimate and involved in the situation uh, rather than totally uh, abandoning it. In fact, I mean, again, uh, he's not to be found uh, necessarily in success. It doesn't mean that God doesn't give us success, but to give you an... I think it's so funny. How often after sporting events do we hear somebody say, I just want to thank God for this victory to get today? Uh, how many of y'all have ever heard someone in, uh, on a sports team say, I just want to thank God for our defeat today? Uh, and nobody ever says that. Why? Because they think that God is only in the business of victory. Why did uh, God let the serpent into the garden in the first place? Farrell, we're out of time. Uh, okay, uh, real quick, if you need to go, please do. Uh, real quick, um, that, see, so what you're getting behind is the hard question because then all of a sudden we start getting to, is God actually the author of evil? Why would God allow something like that? Now, what most people will want to do is they'll immediately want to go the free will route. And I'm not talking about free will versus 
predestination. I'm talking about free will versus the bound will. And so I was actually in a situation once where someone asked a similar question. The tsunami had just hit in Southeast Asia. And somebody said, asked uh, a colleague of mine in my presence why God would allow that to happen. And the first words out of their mouth were, well, God has given us free will to decide. And immediately I, I was like, do I just tackle them and, and shut their mouths? Or, or what? Because what that led everyone in the room to believe is that I am the sum of my choices. That if I just make all the right decisions and I you know, make all the right moves, uh, then things are going to go my way. But y'all know as well as I do that uh, you, know, you can uh, determine the steps you take, but the Lord determines the paths and, uh, and that you are subject to Him. And so in, in talking about uh, the serpent, I don't know. Uh, I wish He hadn't. Uh, but I ha Now what I will say, there's a Christmas song that I don't like uh, for various reasons, but one of the things that used to bother me about it that, that doesn't bother me as much anymore is Adam Lay Bounden. You know that one, we sing it every year. Um, and in it, there's a line that says, um, blessed be the day that apple taken was. Well, one thing that's very funny about that, it wasn't an apple, we have no idea what it was, uh, but what do you mean blessed be the day? They messed it up for us, right? That, 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 it's, how was that a blessed day? But actually, what we see in the Bible is that Although the fellowship that Adam and Eve had with God was great, because of Jesus, our fellowship with Him is even greater and more intimate. And so even in the, what I do know is that even before the serpent entered into the story, our salvation was thawed out before the foundations of the world. And so already the Father knew that He was going to come into the world through the Son and, and that's how God the Father reveals Himself. He reveals Himself through the Son, and the Son is revealed uh, through the Spirit. I mean, they're a trinity of persons. And so uh, even before then, the plan of rescue was to set into motion. And I think I mentioned it last week, the whole idea of perspective. You know, when you read you know, uh, my joke, uh, which I'll repeat because I think it's so funny, uh, if Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump are stuck in a lifeboat in the middle of the ocean, who will survive? America. America will survive. And, <laughs> Uh, so in the midst of, in the midst of all, all that, and, and it's even in the midst of the awful tragedies that have happened, uh, we, we're right to cry out, how long, O Lord? Come quickly, uh, Lord Jesus. Uh, but you look at the Bible, and that's, that's the default position of, of human history. I mean, it was, I mean, you read through the Old Testament, and you're thinking, well, why isn't Jesus coming now? Or, or why isn't God doing something about this now? Why isn't, and then, uh, but uh, at just the right time, in God's timing, Jesus comes into the world. Uh, and, and we are born for such a, a time uh, as this. And, um, and every generation thinks that every previous generation had it better, that the world, the world is progressing uh, toward its end. Uh, but original sin is evenly distributed. So there's a great New Yorker cartoon with these two barbarians leaving a pillaged village and they got the horns on their helmets and one of them looks at the other one and says is it just me or is the world going to hell uh everybody thinks that everybody has thought that in in every generation but the answer and paul would say this the entire bible would say this luther would say this i would say this is that you repent and believe the gospel uh, greatest prayer in the bible i think lord i believe 
Help me in my unbelief. Lord, help me to, you know, the Lord, help me to understand the things I, I can't understand and to bury the bodies where nobody will find them. So that's a joke, by the way. For this All right, y'all, we went over. God bless you. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.